for those that are maybe newer at church of how we got to today and just recap a few things that are important uh, for Christians to understand about Jesus. Jesus, of course, was born. He was raised a Jew. He went to synagogue with his parents. He learned from a religious book called the Torah. And 30 years into Jesus' life, he started what's called his public ministry. So Jesus began to gather 12 men around him that were called his disciples. Jesus went around and brought them with him, and he was involved in different cities throughout all of Israel. And he was teaching, he was preaching, and he was healing and doing miracles, and everybody was a witness of that. It was after that three-year period that Jesus came into Jerusalem, and he came into Jerusalem on a special week. It was a holy week, a holiday, in which Jews from all over the country came into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Jesus taught and he healed in Jerusalem that week, and it was that week in which there was a culmination of anxiety about Jesus. Jesus was causing friction among the Jewish leaders And they were beginning to say, you know, if we're not careful, this guy's going to spread some teaching that we don't want. He's going to say some things that are going to make us look bad. And so we need to conspire to stop him. And so that week, they joined forces with the Romans, and they convinced the Romans to give the death penalty to Jesus by death on a cross. And that was a Roman form of, of not just death, but a Roman form of really ridicule. Uh, it was really a, a criminals were, were put onto the cross. And in fact, Jesus was crucified between two criminals on the day that he was crucified. Our story picks up at the tail end of that because Jesus is put in a tomb for three days. But Jesus, we're going to find out, is going to rise from that tomb. There are three key figures to, in today's story, and there are three women. And I have a painting here that I want to show you. The painting is from a a painter named Herschel Pollard, painted in 2012, and the name of the painting is Mary Magdalene Discovering the Empty Tomb. Mary Magdalene is obviously the person that's front and center right there next to the tomb, and she is next to two women, and the scriptures are going to tell us those are two women that are mothers of the disciples. So it's Mary Magdalene, who, by the way, had seven uh, evil spirits cast out of her by Jesus, and she becomes a follower of Jesus, and these two women that go to the uh, tomb on this day of, of uh, obviously, resurrection day. They don't know that yet, but that's what's going to happen. Follow along. I am in Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. I'm going to have those on the screen behind me. If you've got your Bible open, you can go there too. But this is the way this story is captured by the gospel writer Mark. Mark chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? So in other words, they needed some help in order to be able to, or they imagined they needed some help to get into the tomb. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away, and they entered the tomb. They saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell the disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, 
The women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Father, rest upon us on this Easter morning. May we have ears to hear this story that happened with the women that first discovered that you were not in that tomb. Let us have ears to hear this morning all you want to convey to us. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. I grew up in Northern California in a very rural area. My parents had a couple acres of land, and we were known to have some very big gardens on, vegetable gardens on our land. We had fruit trees that were growing around it. There were orchards all around. It was not uncommon to have pheasants and rabbits and foxes inside my little territory where I grew up, crossing the land where I was. And it was not uncommon for uh, days uh, in the summer especially to be outside for a lot of period of time. And it was oftentimes that planes would fly over. But there was one plane that flew over. Remember, this is the late 60s. There's one plane that flew over that we began to identify as saying, that's the black plane, there it is again. And it was unlike any other plane. Now, we were next to an Air Force base, so it was not uncommon for military planes to come over. But this one was different. This one was sleek. This one was fast. This one was distinct, unlike any other plane. We felt as though we were actually seeing something that maybe was a secret somehow and maybe other people didn't even know about. I'm warming you up, and many of you know exactly where I'm going because I was seeing the SR-71 Blackbird. And that was stationed, little did we know at the time, at Beale Air Force Base in Northern California. That plane was flying out of Beale and was coming back as we saw it make its approach to land. And it was coming after taking pictures in Russia, taking pictures in probably Vietnam at the time. And so the SR-71 was this unknown plane that would fly over. And every time it flew over, we would we, we'd have, you know, just some joy, some exclamation. There it is again, cataclysmic event. And we, you know, come, hurry, you got to see it. And that plane led us to a level of excitement, swelling excitement each time we would see it. Today's story is like my experience with the sleek black plane. It came out of nowhere, and it was a complete surprise. Up until that moment, the disciples had no grid to understand anything about a resurrection, no capacity to understand this new information that would be coming to them. The resurrection was a complete surprise to the women, and it's a complete surprise even for us still today. During this Easter Sunday, I would like to explore the resurrection, and I'd like to explore why it's still such a surprise and why it's still such good news from God to us. First, the resurrection was a surprise because messiahs don't die. The women were on their way to the tomb that morning and they brought spices with them. Now, why would they do that? The body's already dead. In fact, they knew it was in the tomb. So why even go to the tomb? Well, they went because they said, you know what? This is the way that you care for a body in Jewish tradition is you put spices upon it. It's a way of mourning, 
But more importantly, it's a way of tenderly caring for a body. And they know they hadn't had the opportunity to do that. They didn't know if anybody had. They didn't know at the time somebody else had had the body and actually had prepared it, but they didn't know it. So they showed up there at the graveside, hoping that somebody would be able to help move the rock away. They were there, and at that moment, all they could think about is, again, how sad they were. They hoped to make their way in and put the spices on the body. And we need to remember, they didn't put a body in the ground like they did, or like we do today. They put a body inside of a cave. The body decayed inside the cave, and then they went into the cave. They gathered all the bones up, and they put the bones inside what's called an ossuary. This is a picture of an ossuary, so you can see it. It's, a, it, it, you know, it's maybe about this big and this wide, and the bones are gathered up from inside that tomb and are put inside that box. And so you're gathered to your father's bones, as it were, in, in Hebrew thought. And that's what was going to happen, uh, as it were, they thought, at least with Jesus. The women are distraught. The women are there to mourn. The women are stunned. In fact, all the disciples are stunned because, again... They anticipated a Messiah that was coming onto the scene that was going to save Israel. It was, it was a Messiah that was going to be you know, as big as King David, even bigger. And he was going to be this person that would come and give them new national identity. He would be a person that would win victory after victory. And Israel was going to be back on the map again. And so this is the grid that they have. And they don't have any capacity to understand a dead Messiah. Because Messiahs don't die. Let me give you something that I think may help us understand a little bit better what I mean by that. Is for us, heroes in movies don't die. You know, you watch a movie or you watch a TV series and you have this person that's the iconic figure. You can tell they're the hero of the story and you're saying to yourself, I, I know they're in right now in a tough situation, but they're the hero of the story. They're not gonna die. I have an example for you. It's the Star Trek Next Generation and it's John Luke Picard. Jean-Luc Picard is, of course, the captain of the starship Enterprise. And he is known for many a time in which he got very close to difficult situations, hairy situations. And if you're a Star Trek fan and you watch that, you're like, he's not going to die. He's going to make it out of this because he's one of the stars of the whole show. I didn't know this. I had to look this up. But Jean-Luc Picard actually was the uh, hero now of a new series called Star Trek Picard. I didn't even know that was out. And he's getting a little long in the tooth now, right? So apparently he's almost died twice, but he's evaded, evaded death twice. But there are fans of the show that say it's probably going to end with his death. And wouldn't that be the final tribute to Captain Picard is to die on the final episode and kind of uh, go into galaxy land, as it were, if you're a Star Trek uh, a fan. That makes perfect sense if you're watching a movie that the star stays around for as much of the story to be told about that star as possible. But here's what I'm saying to you. Jesus breaks that mold. I mean, so much of the story is just being written about him. It's just beginning about him. And here he goes, again, if you're a Jew, and he dies on us. And where does that leave us? It leaves us with a story very cut short. So much of what we anticipated is not going to get done now. And so again, there's all kinds of anxiety on the inside of the women and on the inside of the disciples at this time because messiahs are not supposed to die. Second, the second surprise that they face that day is that people don't rise from the dead. 
The ladies come to the, the tomb, and of all surprises, they're like, ah, the rock's already rolled away. It's like, who, who could have done that? You know, who else is here to care for the body like we would be? I don't know anybody. And so they're automatically surprised by that. Then they look in and double surprise. There's somebody inside the tomb. He's dressed all in white. Another gospel writer says it's shining like brilliant light, like maybe a star even is coming out of this person. And the man talks to them. And he says, we know who you're looking for. You're looking for Jesus. But he's not here. In fact, he says he's going to be in the Galilee region. You're going to follow him there. But right now, he's not here because he has risen. Now, again, if some of us were asked, do you know about anybody who's ever risen from the dead? Chances are good that some of you might say, well, you know, I read a book about somebody who left their body and maybe went away, and oftentimes if you hear stories like that, it's like they went to the light, and they saw light, and they felt warmth, and they felt love, but then they had to come back to their body and get back into their body in order to carry on. And again, there's you know, maybe common stories. You maybe heard stories like that, but really, I think we're left with the question, did they really ever even die? I mean, kind of they went away on a little journey and came back. I don't dismiss the importance of that, but they didn't die. Jesus is a dead guy for three days, and they come into this reality. In fact, the, the angel even says he's risen, and I'm sure they said, come again? What, what? Because they can't understand. How, how would that even be possible? How would that happen? That is the center of Christianity. As Pastor Nick said as he opened up our, our service today, that's the linchpin. If that doesn't happen, we are individuals who have no faith that's of no value anymore. And we're just, you know, we're just playing tiddlywinks here. But we really believe that Jesus has risen from the dead, and that makes all kinds of difference. And there's evidence for that, testimony, eyewitness of that, that are in the scriptures. I love a quote from Pannenberg, a, a German theologian, and this is what he says. The evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. First, it's a very unusual event. And second... If you believe it happened, you have to change the way you live. How true is that? It's a very rare thing. We're not denying that, that there's somebody that rose from the dead. And really, the other thing that might keep us from that is there's something that God is pressing upon us that he wants to change, and there is something that he always changes in our lives when we do come to know him. Dead people don't come back to life, but in Jesus' case, he did and that's what's more is Jesus actually even makes a promise to all of his followers that we actually will face a resurrection someday also. So he's the first, and there are those of us that are going to follow later on, and so we look forward to that. All right, there's a third surprise that the women uh, feel at the tomb that morning, and the third uh, surprise is uh, that they are given or trusted with this message. The women are the key eyewitnesses. Now, again, why do I say that that's any kind of a big deal at all, that the women are trusted with the information? Well, it's because the witness of a woman in the ancient world, I hate to say it, but it wasn't worth much. If, especially if you were in a court of law, if you really wanted to make your case, then you would make sure and give the story, as it were, or have the testimony come from a man and you really wanted a well-positioned man, somebody who really spoke eloquently, that would be the person that you would want to hear the story. Notice that the passage says, no, 
the women are the ones that receive this message. God breaks all kinds of rules, and he says, I'm not afraid to give that testimony to the women. And God does this in grand fashion. He says, they're the first witnesses of the resurrection, and they're the ones I'm entrusting with this important information. I want you to notice something. It says that the women are so afraid that they don't go go tell the disciples. That's a snapshot in time. We do know from the other gospel writers that after they're stunned for a while, they actually do make their way to the disciples, and the disciples end up coming running to 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 the cemetery and to the cave just so they can see for themselves. But the part I want you to hear is that the women are trusted as very unlikely witnesses for that day. People in society might never think that they would be given that kind of important information, but God says, guess what? I'm different, and I will give information to the most unlikely people. They will be the heroes oftentimes of my story, and the women are trusted that day. Henry Nouwen is a favorite author of mine. I've read many of his books. Henry Nouwen is a Catholic priest. He uh, taught at Yale and Harvard And the last 10 years of Henry Nouwen's life, in fact, I've got a picture here of Henry Nouwen with one of his great quotes, our greatest fulfillment lies in giving ourselves to others. Let me keep his picture up while I tell you more of his story. The last 10 years of his life, he lived his life among people with tremendous emotional, physical, and uh, instabilities on the inside of them. He lived in a home that was dedicated to individuals with delays and problems. He was there at this home, and there was one man named Trevor that ended, in, ended up into a somewhat of a psychotic episode, and so the home said, we've got to have you go to a psychiatric hospital for a time while we have you evaluated and address some of your needs. Henry Nowen said, you know, I'm here. I would love to go visit Trevor while he's in the hospital. So he called the hospital and said, I would like to come visit Trevor. Word spread in the hospital that Henry Nowen was coming, and he was pretty famous at that time. And they said, they called back, Henry, could we have you come, and we would love for you to speak at lunch, and we'll have all of the doctors and the clergy people of the hospital come to hear you speak. And he said, well, sure, I'd be willing to do that. And so he shows up that day, ready to visit Trevor, ready to give the speech, And he comes into what's called the golden room. That's where they were going to have their uh, special talk with with him that day and the lunch. And he comes and there's no Trevor. And, you know, he's kind of confused by that. He says, well, where's Trevor? And they said, well, we have a policy. There's nobody uh, that's a patient that's allowed to eat with a doctor for lunch. And there's never been a patient that's been inside the golden room before. And Henry Nowen is no, you know, he's not a pushy guy, all right? He's a pretty tame and mild guy, but at that moment, he said, I just had this feeling that Trevor needs to be here. Trevor is supposed to be here. And so he pressed back against the official, and he said, you know, I'm sorry, but if Trevor's not here, he's the whole reason I came today anyway, and if Trevor's not here, I'm not sure I can speak. And so they said, oh, well, we suddenly found a way for Trevor to come to lunch. So they're enjoying uh, the start of the lunch. They're all around the tables. They're talking with each other. And all of a sudden, Trevor on his left picks up his Coca-Cola glass and says, a toast, I have a toast. And everybody looks around and they're like PhDs and all these people with this man that they're not quite sure how he's ill, but here he is calling for a toast. And everybody's emotional like, what's gonna happen? And he raises his glass and he starts singing, if you're happy and you know it, raise your glass. 
And everybody's like, what is going to happen? But he kept on. Henry Nouwen says, he kept on and pretty soon the whole room was singing, if you're happy and you know it, raise your glass. And they sang chorus after chorus of this song, amazed at this man who was reportedly so sick, but was enjoying himself at that moment almost more than anybody else in the room. This is the way that this story ends. Henry went to give a talk at the luncheon, but the moment everyone remembered The moment that God spoke most clearly was through the person that they would have said was the least likely person to speak for God. The surprise of the story is that the women are trusted by God. Societally, that is a surprise, and societally, it's something that would not have happened. There's one more surprise I want you to see today. The final surprise is that uh, you don't end a story like this on such uncertainty. Mark ends the story on a very dissonant note. He ends it on a note in which it's like, you know, are you sure you want to end the story there? In fact, I'm going to put it back up for you again because I just want you to see it. It's like, I don't think you're supposed to end stories that way. But here it is, verse 8. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now, again, there's some big, big emotional words there. Trembling. It doesn't mean just shaking. It means alarmed. On the inside, I'm agitated in some way. And that's the way the women feel. Uh, felt uh, bewildered. It's this sense of, uh, of, of a blended fear and wonderment. It's like saying, what is going on here? I, I can't grasp it. I can't get my arms around it. And so they are bewildered, and they're also afraid. The Greek word phobeo is fear. It's where we get our word phobia, and it's the extreme fear or the extreme, you know, whoa, I'm, I, I, there's something here that's around me that I, I can't grasp and I can't understand and I, I don't want The women are so emotional, they're emotional mess, and so they can't make sense out of what is happening. And if you're writing a story, I'm wondering, would you end the story on that note? It seems like an unsettled story. It seems like one in which it's like, I I just don't know. If If you're trying to convince people about Jesus, I'm not sure you end on that note. But here's what I want you to hear today. This strikes at the authenticity of this story. Because Mark says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to give you a snapshot of people who are in the the moment of trying to grasp exactly what has happened. These are the individuals that are just saying, whoa, I don't get all this, but this is where we are. And Mark is saying, I want you to understand those people are in process just like you are in process. Perhaps the story hits you that way today. It leaves you a little bit bewildered, a little bit unsettled. If so, you're in good company because that's the way millions of people across the ages have felt. It's like I think I'm beginning to understand this idea that Jesus died and rose again, but that's a lot for me to take in. 
I believe the testimony of the people that are the gospel writers. I believe the testimony of Jesus himself, but it's still quite a lot for me to, to believe, and it's a lot for me to give my life to. Do you know that that's exactly, again, what the women felt? That's what the disciples felt. And they went off from the grave that day. Jesus showed up to them again and again before he ascended to heaven. And he taught them, he assured them, he counseled them, and they became the individuals that gave their entire lives to spreading the message that Jesus had died and risen again. Sure, they were stunned, but Jesus works inside of all of those emotions and he brings out what he wants. I have a quote from uh, one of my favorite pastors, Tim Keller, and this is what he says. The resurrection makes Christianity the most irritating religion on the face of the earth. He says the reason is because most people, this is how they decide what they believe. They decide what they believe by reading it and saying, I like this or I don't like this. That's the way people make decisions usually about religious matters. I like this or I don't like this. Over the years, he said, I've said to many people, well, I, they, they say to me, I could never be a Christian. And I say, why? And they say, well, there's part of the Bible I find offensive. And he said, I remember that years ago in one of my churches in Virginia, there were people that found the Bible offensive too. It was around money. And he said, and then I moved to New York and the people found the Bible offensive about sex. And he said, there's always something to find offensive for humans. He says, I usually say to them, let me ask you a question. Are you saying that because there are parts of the Bible that you don't like, that Jesus could have never risen from the dead? And they say, oh, no, no, no. I'm not saying that at all. He says, well, every part of the Bible is important, but would you please for a moment just take the ethical parts of the teaching out of the way and would you focus upon this one aspect of Jesus rising from the dead? He says, if you're going to deal with the Bible, you first of all have to deal with the reality of Jesus rising from the dead. And if you do believe that, then he says, then obviously you'll need to take serious the rest of the Bible. He says, if you don't believe that, then I don't know what's vexing you at all because you really have no issue. All of us are in that position. We're saying, I may not understand everything that the Bible teaches. I may not agree with everything that the Bible teaches. But the one central event is Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. And that's the part of the story that we have to deal with first. I'm wondering if some of you here today, for the first time, are beginning to understand that story and the implications of that story. It says that Jesus went to the cross because he was motivated by love and he was accomplishing something we couldn't accomplish for ourselves. We have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, meaning that we've disobeyed God. And we've done that sometimes knowingly and sometimes unknowingly, but we've done that and disobeyed God. Jesus goes to the cross in order for him to die and take on the penalty of that sin that we should have had for ourselves. And that's the whole purpose of him going to the cross is to accomplish the forgiveness of sins for all who would believe, the world. That's what Jesus is doing. Now, there's an issue here, though. And the issue is that we always have to do what we do with every gift. We have to receive it. If you have a birthday and people bring you gifts, if you don't ever unwrap that gift, it's not a gift you're ever going to enjoy and receive. 
And so you have to receive that gift. You have to open that gift. You have to look at that gift. And you have to actually, you know, do something with that gift. You have to engage that gift. That's the same with the gospel message. It comes to you. It's such good news. But you have to receive that gift and you have to appropriate it as your own. On this Easter Sunday, I can think of nothing that would bring more joy to heaven than to have individuals that are saying, this is my day. I believe that message, and I wish to have Jesus as my Savior. Let's pray. Father, what a story. The three women who show up at the tomb ready to anoint a body that's not there. They are told you have risen, and it upends everything they knew about their world at that moment. And Lord, you are still in the process with all of us of upending our worlds, of convincing us of your reality, convincing us of the truth of the message in the scriptures that we need a Savior. For my friends that are here today, Lord, I pray that this is the day in which they say, yes, <laughs> Jesus' death 2,000 years ago still makes a difference today in my life, and I wish to have him as my Savior. Lord, I pray that individuals that make that decision will tell a friend, to tell somebody that they know, and that they will begin to walk and be protected by you from the enemy that would want to sink them. For the rest of us, Lord, this is a great Easter morning. We rejoice at the resurrection. We pray this in Christ's name.